Welcome to Speakeasy Theology with Chris Green. Welcome back, everyone. Kimberly, it's good to have you here with us today. Oh, it's great. It's great to be with you today. Great to be with you. Yeah. I, we don't get to talk enough. I'm, I'm glad we're we're forcing yeah. ourselves to do it. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, I've only just met you, that. and I already feel like we don't talk enough. So I don't know if that if that can. Well, that can we can fix that. You know, we can change that. That's so. right. This is why this will turn into a six hour recording. No, no <laughs> apologies really for that. It's either. true. So I want to start right just with what you've been doing recently. I know you just finished last week or the week before the Pentecostal lectures. At Northwest. Yeah. So why don't, why don't we just start with that? Tell us a yeah. little bit about what you did in those lectures and, and we'll go from there. Okay. That's great. Um, thank you. Yeah. It was a real um, privilege to get to do those. And, you know, one of the reasons was that it, it allowed me to really think for a while and write for a while and some things that have been churning and, um, you know, pull from research and things I'd been reading and, and really get down on paper, you know, what I wanted. So, uh, I appreciated the opportunity. Um, when I, I think it was 2021, fall of 2021, I uh, was asked by Fuller, um, I think Amos Young actually, to do this um, lecture for their. Um, they were they have an annual intercultural studies missions kind of lecture series or, or symposium, I think they call it. And so I was asked to do kind of an opening one get this, on the history of healing in Christianity. <laughs> it was like, and, you know, in 40 minutes, you know. Right. Yes. So, um, you know, right off the bat, I knew that, you know, that can't be done. So I just, you know, as I was thinking about it, because I've taught courses on that, um, which is the reason I knew it couldn't be done in 40 minutes. I was like, right. I've taught entire courses on this and not covered everything. So I decided that what I would do is kind of think about it thematically, some themes that I had seen emerging. And so um, one of those I looked at was um, atonement models and cosmic redemption. And, um, and then out of that kind of emerged the next theme, which was the role of women in healing ministries and I'll explain kind of that in a moment. And then the third one was uh, was how um, those two bring us to models that are very incarnational. And um, so I talked about people like Dr. Dennis McQuaggy in the Congo, who's doing like on the ground healing work with victims of um, uh, rape as a weapon of war. And he is a Pentecostal and he's an uh a surgeon, a gynecological surgeon. So anyway, that was kind of the way I, I did it. And as I was writing um, and thinking about women really in early church and then later in the medieval church, which are not my areas of expertise. So I was very dependent on other scholars there and even kind of afraid that what I was saying didn't make sense and contacted Dale Coulter, you know, the medievalist and said, yes. let me talk this through with you, you know? So, but what I, you know, I had always seen that healing was kind of this safe space for women um, in ministry. And I saw that even when my with my own early studies in women in Pentecostalism, that um, women can, you know, I mean, you have the, the classic examples of like Amy Simple McPherson. So and then later people like Catherine Kuhlman and others. And so even um you know, people who didn't believe that women should have any sort of ministry role felt 
you know, that they could go to this woman for healing because it's this very nurturing kind of thing. Mm. So I'd always seen that. But then when I realized as I was doing that study a few years, years ago, was what happens is women end up in these places of, in particular, uh, healing ministry. Um, and they end up looking a little more like Jesus <laughs> than some of the other kind of ministry functions that um, that people think of as kind of professional ministry and all of that. Um, and it also struck me that it was ironic that that became the healing was a safe space for women when there are no real models of women healers in the New Testament, mm. specific healing ministries um, and miracles. Um, and so I'd been mulling on that. So when I was invited to do these, they really wanted me to particularly talk about women and um, and they said, or healing. And I said, well, what if we merge those? So I knew what I was going to do in the first lecture, but then I'm thinking, okay, what are other ways? And yeah. so, you know, Chris, I've done um, a, a, a chapter for you about this. One of the people I've been doing research on is Margaret Gaines, right, right. who is this missionary in Palestine um, and really to Arab people for over um, 40 years, actually probably closer to 50, but she was in Palestine for 36 years. Um, and, and I had been thinking also for a while that in these relegated spaces, women end up doing, you know, what, what was called in missionary circles, women's work for women. Um, they end up doing the kind of work that makes more lasting impact on culture, the villages they're in, the society around them in some ways than the more ecclesiastical structural things do because they build orphanages. And so these care kinds of things, which are seen to be, Oh, that's okay for women to do um, end up having profound impact. And it's not that men haven't had profound impact, but you know what I'm saying? It's like we're getting, we're relegating. You can do this Mm -hmm. while we do the kind of important stuff but then it's had this last, and you can think about that in all throughout church history, sisters of mercy, sisters of charity, mother Teresa, you know, yeah, I was gonna 20th say, century. I mean, when we think about the, the impact of someone like mother Teresa, even, even popes pale in comparison to that. That's kind of right. And so it's this kind of um, happy uh, consequence of what, you know, uh, ecclesiastical leaders meant for evil, but the Lord seemed to mean for good, you know, it's like, we'll let you do that. And then, I mean, there are these women like Margaret Gaines is one of them, but even a woman, an Anglican woman missionary that she built upon, um, they stay, you know, when Mm -hmm. the wars come and everybody else is fleeing and they're being told to flee by the government or whatever, these women stay and, serve and are among those people and in these very incarnational, sacrificial kinds of ways. So that's really where the ideas came from. Um, So I talked about pastoral models as um, from the perspective of matriarchy versus patriarchy Mm -hmm. and what a matriarchal culture looks like. Yeah. Um, and then the last piece that I did was on prophecy, women as prophets. And I didn't really want to look at just spoken prophecy alone. That's certainly part of it. But how women 
um, in their very being are prophetic um, yeah. as uh, being being filled with the spirit and what that looks like. So that's where it sort of came from. And, um, and I was pretty happy with it. Once I got it down on paper, I was like, okay, I think yeah. that works. Yeah. And the feedback I got was pretty good. You know, there's still work to be done, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's what I've been thinking about for several years. We'll link all of those talks so people can hear them. And I'm sure at some point they'll appear in print, we'll be able to. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to figure out what to do with them. I know what needs to be built. You know, I need to build on them and where that needs to go, uh, obviously, but um, so I'm not quite ready for print yet. I don't think, but I know what I want to do with them. Yeah. I hear that. I I think one of the things you said, I think it's the first lecture, not only that there was a kind of happy unintended consequence, right? As you said, what the ecclesiastical hierarchs meant for evil, God meant for good in that women occupied these spaces, occupied spaces that men, at least the the leaders, the ecclesiastical leaders would not, but o- occupied them differently, occupied yeah. them longer, right? In ways that had lasting cross-generational impact. But you also said, and again, I think it was in the first lecture, that that enabled them to embody aspects of Jesus' ministry yeah. that ecclesiastical hierarchy had largely lost touch with. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. You know, I, I wanted to make it clear and I want to make it clear right now that I am not saying that women should be relegated to any just spaces because they're women. Um, But I think what it does is it speaks prophetically and really challenges us to think about again, about what those roles are um, of Bishop. Um, uh, You know, I'm not the only one to say that a bishop is supposed to be, you know, tending to the flock, right? So, so what, but what we seem to do um, in the way we even talk about authority and leadership is leave out these nurturing Mm. images, which Jesus himself is lifting up. Um, You know, the good shepherd model to me is um, it really challenges models of oversight. And so these women in staying for, you know, decades in harsh conditions or whatever the situation, they are laying down their lives for Mm -hmm. the sheep in ways that um, ministers who are appointed for short times and moved over to others may not. I mean, other studies I've done have shown that along with some other people shown that, Women tend to be long-term pastors, and much of that is because they have to plant their own churches. They don't get appointed to them. Right. They rarely get promoted to a larger church mm-hmm. in a um, in a structure like in the Church of God or the IPHC or somewhere where that could happen. They rarely get those kinds of appointments, so they stay and they stay and they stay, and they end up being long-term pastor pastors. They are the church planters. They they are mentoring and raising up. Um, particularly other women yeah. in ministry. So I think what really examining what women do helps us with is to rethink models of ministry in general. Um, yeah. And uh, and so we're, we're looking at a model of Jesus as a minister rather than a corporate idea of what leadership is mm-hmm. or um, – you know, government, you know, wherever the models seem to be drawn from. Um, Right now, they seem to be from corporate models. Yeah. You know, and another dimension of this that I haven't 
that just was sparked for me while you were talking, while I was listening to the lecture, that if you think about ancient medieval figures who, you know, say in the Roman church are identified as doctors of the church. Yeah. Yeah. That not only are women kind of occupying these roles outside the camp, so to speak, in the language of Hebrews, right? They're outside the city where Jesus is crucified. And not only are they staying longer and embodying this, this nurturing presence, but it also precisely for those reasons, it enables them to be ecumenical in a way that, that men, especially men who are in positions of church leadership, rarely can be, right? That's right. So mystics can be, you know, someone like St. John of the Cross can have kind of ecumenical heft. Yeah. And there are some churchmen who do have that kind of reach. But often it is these women, right, who these missionaries, these marginal figures, quote unquote, who have massive long-term influence across all Absolutely. And, um, you know, that's a that's something I haven't even um, explored fully, but I have thought about that. Um, you know, they are networking with other women from other traditions, for instance. Um, yeah. They are, uh, you know, and missionaries tend to be more ecumenical anyway mm. than, you know, mm. uh, church leaders within and pastors within um, particular nations. And I know, obviously, uh, the U S better than other cultures. So missionaries tend to have, they've, they've had to cross lines right. for help, for resourcing, for fellowship, for whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, they're outside the camp. <laughs> and so something that seems to be sort of not mainstream ends up doing the thing that looks more like the model that Jesus is, has laid down. And I don't think it's just Jesus. I think we just haven't read Paul correctly, right? I think we just haven't yeah. read um, those other um, New Testament figures really correctly because, uh, you know, if you do a real missional reading of book, the book of Acts, you see they keep being driven outside of that. So mm-hmm. Peter, Paul, they're being driven yeah. to the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it's it's one of those things that really can challenge us to rethink um, how we do ministry leadership training, how we do ministry leadership um, and how we mentor people, how all of that, I think this has implications for, and I'm just sort of beginning to explore that, but I, um, I, I think it's really a challenge because I've been very frustrated as you know, an older scholar now and an older woman who's worked in seminaries and all of that for years and in pastoral ministry, I've been pretty dissatisfied with what, and I hate to say this, but I'll just go ahead and say it, with what I see is leadership training, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and the leadership studies thing. Um, and uh, so, of course, I'm a historical theologian. I'm, you know, I love history. I'm going to always pull from those models, but I think we can drink from our own wells here and it can challenge us to rethink how we pastor, how we lead, how we do oversight, um, and especially how we train. And um, yes. yeah, so the question, I suppose, for me, you know, that, that is is hanging in the air around that is this question of hospitality, and I'm I'm being shaped by our conversation with Frank that we had, and 
the the thing that I think I perceive with this sort of modern leadership obsession within uh, I, think, I think predominantly Western models of the church, but it does seem to be creeping right. elsewhere, is that our our leadership models are are functionally capitalistic. They're not hospitable models. Right. So we're shaping generations of pastors uh, to not think hospitably. Uh, and, and it strikes me, I, I can't remember who it is and it'll come to me at some point when I'm probably when I'm sleeping tonight that talks about, um, how in Luke's gospel, Jesus is killed because he eats with the wrong people. Uh, so he mm. says essentially Jesus is killed for how he eats. <laughs> and, uh, but, but what he's yeah. digging into is that you see this hospitality ethic and, and I'm fascinated by how you, your comment about acts as well in that, about how. Like Barnabas is a fascinating character. We don't, you never hear him talked about as this leadership model, but he is hospitable, sells what Absolutely. he has to feed the poor, stands in the gap for Paul when people are thinking about not trusting him, you know, yeah. advocates for John Mark. And I realize he's not a female character, but that, but that track that you're talking about, it's there. It's just ignored by us, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think, um, it just it, it's just another example of how we have read the text through preconceived notions yeah. of what um leader real leadership is and um you know and to kind of tie speaking of Luke Acts i think we also have read that in pentecostal circles with regard to what prophecy is and what prophets mm-hmm. look like you know, we are drawn to immediately the kind of wild and woolly Elijah on Mount Carmel prophet, you know, mm-hmm. because he's killing people, you know. And so we like that kind of violent, aggressive uh, model because it, well, I'll just say it, I think it straightens out the meek and mild Jesus for us, you know. So, um, so we, okay, yeah, so it's okay for me to be you know, kind of aggressively passionate about God. Um, but, you know, I've heard this preach my whole life, but, you know, John the Baptist is the last prophet of that Old Testament order or whatever. Yeah. But then we still think about prophets like, you know, John the Baptist um, and the Old Testament models. But there are even Old Testament models we can draw from yeah. um, that look more like Mary mm-hmm. uh, as that as that model for us. And so, um, you know, I think there are men with, uh, I mean, I've been nurtured well by men. I have a very loving, tenderhearted father, right? So it's not, this is not just saying, you know, I'm not saying at all guys need to act more like women. I'm just saying that these models that are other than um, wild and woolly, uh, seem to be the way prophecy looks. I don't know. I'm not a biblical studies person, right? But that seems to me to be what's happening with Mary in the New Testament. It's a shift. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And what you get in the opening chapters of of Luke, right, is is a kind of explosion of prophecy. Yes. But it's Mary primarily. I mean, she's the prophet exemplar right she's she's embodying yeah. and, and luke gives us all kinds of details in the text like hints that she is the new isaiah she is yes. the new Gideon. Mm-hmm. she's yeah. the, the favored one in the way that gideon was favored you know she sees the lord in the way that isaiah does I and mean, all, all of these 
textual clues. But you also, of course, have the contrast between Zachariah and Elizabeth even before that. Yeah, that's right. In which Zachariah is the one to whom the angel appears while he's in in the midst of his priestly duties. But he he doesn't understand. He doesn't know what's happening. He doesn't make yeah. faithful sense of it. And Elizabeth somehow does, right? That when Mary shows up to her, Elizabeth is filled with the spirit. Even the child already in her womb is filled with the spirit. Yeah. And, and she prophesies, right? She speaks this word of blessing over Mary. And then, of course, we get Anna slash Hannah in the next yeah. chapter, right? Along with yeah. Simeon. So if, if we think about those figures, it's telling, right? That we don't have anything like the the wild and woolly Elijah. We we don't have anything toxic yeah. in, in in even though you do have someone like Simeon, he's an old man who's on his way out. <laughs> now I can <laughs> yeah. depart in peace, right? And I right. think that right. that is that's telling, right? It's telling. Yeah, and even um uh you know other depictions uh I mean John well um in Matthew um John the Baptist is not able to understand Jesus' ministry. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're not doing what I thought you would do. And Jesus' answer, you know, here, yes, this is it. This is the kingdom. Is It's all very nurturing things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> these things are happening. These healings are happening. These people are being set free. Um, you know, these people are having the gospel preached to them. Um, and so... I went back and looked at um, at Brueggemann in the Hopeful Imagination, where he's talking about prophets of the exile. Yeah, um, there's a very there's there's a difference between prophesying doom and prophesying hope. Yeah, um, and so I think with Mary, you see that hopeful imagination. This mm-hmm. is what is to be, and um, and now and this is what it's going to look like. Yeah. And, you know, and in Luke, you've got all that prophetic activity. And though, you know, we don't have necessarily words from Anna, um, but five in, of five people there who are speaking or acting prophetically, three are women, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and um, so and they and all of those prophecies are about hope. Yeah. Every yes. everything is about the hope of salvation. The hope, you know. Now, I, you know, even Simeon is saying, you know, now I can it can go because I've seen because I've seen Israel, the yeah. salvation has come. It's yes. arrived. Yeah. yeah. So I I just I think by changing our lens with how not just how we view scripture, but how we read our own history, um, it can help us to reshape and really clean up some of the mess we've made. Mm-hmm. Um, in the church, we're in the 21st century. It's kind of like, okay. Uh, and, you you know, we've just had this, this and are having, I, I think, still this wave of revival. And it's a very different kind of revival, you know, or it seems to be. So, um, uh, you know, there's repentance, but it's repentance on the part of the church. <laughs> there's, uh, you know, so I... I just think that this is an opportunity for us. And one of the things we have to do is, you know, see our own history differently. Um, I had a student a number of years ago, uh, Vince Lee, he's Vietnamese and he's written about Pentecostals in, in Vietnam in that Brill series. But he wrote a paper for me um, 
coming out of just reading the Azusa Street, where he talked about the intuition of the spirit. And as long as, as those early Pentecostals were following the intuition of the spirit, they were doing things in his case, what he was um, particularly looking for was raising up indigenous leadership mm-hmm. rather than having the imposition of kind of colonial models. But, mm-hmm. but once organization begins and once education begins and once all of these kinds of things, we tended to borrow from, yeah. you know, these other models and, mm-hmm. um, you know, in a spirit of ecumenism, I, I don't want to say those are bad models, I just think they are, it's Saul's armor. It's not our armor. Mm-hmm. It doesn't fit mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. And it has done uh, kind of some long-term damage that we need to fix and correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it would be, it's tempting to say, so we need to find a way to stay in a kind of permanent state of disorganization. So, so that, that <laughs> right, right. But we can't really, I mean, there does have to be a way, at least on some fronts where we, discerningly move toward organization, arrangement, yeah. establishment of authority, and so on. But Absolutely. that has to be done in the power of that same spirit, right? In yeah. in that same hospitality and nur- that, that spirit of nurture and care that, that you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, David, My mother you know, was a very authoritative person, you yeah. know, <laughs> but she was also very nourishing. So the, the problem is we have wrong ideas about what power and authority Absolutely. Uh, are. And so, um, you know, and again, I, I shouldn't even use the word wrong. Maybe it's fine for another model, but when you have a model or when you have a tradition that values the voice of the spirit and values the work of the spirit, then we don't need to be mo- borrowing from traditions that downplay that, Yeah, you know, um, uh, that doesn't mean we can't fellowship with them. It doesn't mean we can't work together. But what we bring to the table mm-hmm. is a different kind of uh, way of understanding authority. Because I've always, I've always thought it was hilarious, actually, and frustrating at the same time. Probably hilarious, so I won't get mad. But that people say, well, you know, women can't have authority in church, but they can prophesy. <laughs> right, right. What is that? Sure mean? God's authority, just not ours. Right. right. <laughs> you know, so we were like in those early discussions about women's place, it's like, well, they can do this, they can do this, or they can preach, but they can't have any authority. So, you know, if I said to any of those men, well, your preaching is not authoritative, <laughs> they would have been yes. gr- greatly <laughs> insulted by that, you know. Yes, so, yes. um, you know, uh, anyway, so I'm just, uh, I can't fix all of this, you know, but, um, and it wasn't really what I set out to do. It's just that as I started reading that, I kept thinking, wow, this really challenges, it's really challenges some things Mm -hmm. and might speaking of healing might be a way of bringing some healing here. Mm -hmm. And if, if healing is provided for all in the atonement, it's provided for all, (laughs) all the sickness, right? All the sickness in the church. Um, so. Absolutely. David, were you going to ask a follow-up? Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate your, your generosity. Um, I, I almost want to (laughs) see if I can tease you out of the generosity a little tiny bit. Oh, you can. Um, And (laughs) I'm trying to um, be good here. Yeah. So let me frame it like this. It's, it's not lost on me that that Mary is the one 
who is so of the spirit that she is the one who doesn't recoil in the presence of the spirit, right? So she is perplexed by the things the angel says, but she is not afraid, right? Whereas whereas the standard model that you see is that everybody else, pre-Luke even, they encounter angels and there's terrifying fear. And and Mary is is curious about like this message that comes, but she is not afraid. I think yeah. I, I think Luke in his narrative, and, and I'm 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 careful of not wanting to project onto Luke, but I can't help but notice how he then presents Mary the prophet, the one of the spirit, how women hold this place in the parabolic narratives of, of Luke. The women are Absolutely. the one if you want to look for advice, follow what the women are doing. They're always the ones yeah. and the, the woman is never the the wrong one in a Lucan parable. The woman is always the one who makes the right choices. The men make bad choices. The women right. make the good choices. Fascinating sort of, and I can't think Luke's doing this accidentally, right? That's right. Well, and there's the, David, just in, insert this, and for Luke, that similar, there's a similar parallel between rich and poor. Mm-hmm. So yes. some of this is not so only because they're women, but also because they're poor. And so and there's overlap there between. And you know, other races the, and or ethnicities. Yes. Yeah, as well, yeah. right? And yeah. so, and you see that, of course, in Acts, and you see, yes. so, um, yeah, it, it, the th- the people that we other, you know, mm-hmm. the people that we, um, those are the ones, I mean, and that, to me, uh, Mary's song, her, her, mm-hmm. um, her entire prophecy outlines that. That's the program. It's the whole program. The richer being brought down, the lowlier being raised up. And so mm-hmm. the lowliest person in Jewish society at that time, this young woman, mm-hmm. is being yes. raised up in that very moment. Um, and, uh, I mean, Mary is fulfillment of prophecy, and she is prophesying, and um, she is in her very being mm-hmm. a prophet. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I think I think that's so it's one of those, I had this woman um, once that I taught in a class on history of women and Pentecostalism and, or in, in men, actually women in leadership in general. And uh, she was an older woman, probably my age. And she had been in the corporate world and she um, had moved into some pastoral um, leadership, but in a mm-hmm. church where it was still much more complementarian. So they had sort of mm-hmm. let her be over the women's things. But I saw her later and she said, I'm really, I just need to tell you, I'm really struggling. I sit in these meetings and I hear these things. And now that you've opened up my, I can't unsee it now. I can't not, you know. And so I think that's what happens once you start seeing that. Um, It's not that you're imposing something else on it. We're seeing some things that we've missed because of the kind of Western, um, mindset that we've had and mm. really kind of a 20th century mindset. But obviously, I mean, women throughout church history haven't fared any better. Um, and, but, but Chris, to bring back, you were talking about, you know, doctors of the church. If you think yeah. about the women who were, have been designated as doctors of the church, um, these are women who are matriarchal. They're over convents. They're over, mm. you know, um, and in some cases, even, uh, you know, um, mentoring. I mean, we wouldn't have a St. John of the Cross if, if Teresa had not mentored him right Mm -hmm. into that. And so, um, and they're having visions and hearing voices and they are, you know, 
just like Mary. Um, they're having these appearances and, and like, uh, like you say that, you know, David, they're very comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. The people who are uncomfortable with it are kind of, you know, they're confessors, for instance, or the mm-hmm. people who can't quite, um, and of course, the the it always goes to women. This is another whole thing. I, I told Dale Coulter the other day. I'm going to have to write about how many women, especially in Pentecostal circles, but it happened with these women as well. These medievalist or medieval women, they get labeled as crazy or insane, yeah, and that's an easy mm-hmm. way to write off. Silence, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think in some ways that's what ha- is happening, like with the woman with the issue of blood, you know. You're bothering Jesus. You're, you know, they are ostracized, um, and Jesus very uh, carefully and kindly to her is calling her daughter. Mm. You know, bringing mm. her, showing you are showing her value in the family, and so, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So that's where you know that's what I've been. Uh, really contemplating lately. And I, I think it's not just biblical studies that I think we have to work, all of us have to work together in that. But I, I do think historical studies can really show us how in, a, even in our own tradition, there are these yeah. women mm. like Lillian Trasher, like Margaret Gaines, um, uh, who just embody all of that in their very yeah. being. They are, um, they're prophetic. They're, they are shepherds. They um, mm. and they're healers. They're you know I could have, you know I could almost superimpose uh, you know or just kind of transfer. I could say okay, I can talk about Margaret Gaines as a healer. I can talk about Margaret Gaines as a prophetic. I can talk because they're it's who they are in their bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's integrated. Yeah, right? I mean, it's fully integrated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rebecca Barr um, the church in the Church of God. We know very little about her. Um, She's the first missionary in the Church of God, but that letter from her, from her own, well, two letters, one from her husband, talking about her going out and praying for people who really are resistant to their message, but as she lays her hands of power on them, that's what he says, Mm -hmm. as she lays her hands of power on them, they are overwhelmed by the Spirit, and then they, they come, uh, come to faith, you know? So, um, there's another example of this very embodied presence of of the Lord that, that changes everything. You know, it's a shift. It always is a shift when you have these, these women, like you're saying scripture, you know, Mm. wherever, um, it changes things. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, David, finish finish your question. Because I'm, I'm, I'm still, you know, and I say, I say this in the spirit of friendship. I don't want to let you off. I still want to push you to less generosity, okay? So, which isn't a godly characteristic, I realize, but that I do this. But, You're wanting so, me to be less hospitable, really, is what I we're do, saying. I do. This is exactly about where hospitality. I'm okay. Yes. Okay. So, and so here, let me let me let me try and frame it. So, I want to follow up just a little comment that I love. You made me think of the story in, in Luke 13, where Jesus heals the the woman who has some form of crippling injury on the sabbath and there's there's a phenomenal moment where jesus the the greek of it's gorgeous because he uses the same worth he he says to the people you hypocrites because you will loose a donkey on the sabbath but you don't want me to loose this woman right Uh, and 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 most of the english translations obscure the double use of loose and jesus is like you're 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 not categorizing this woman 
even higher than you than an animal and 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 luke spots that he puts them to shame because of this right um i love that but but you made a comment in your lecture i think it's a third lecture um and so let me kind of frame this like this so women by their very being prophetically challenge the cursed world history of patriarchy and oppression of women Mm -hmm. but of also of the other right so I was thinking about this trajectory where we're in the conversation of of Luke of Acts. I think the the story of the first deacons in Acts is fascinating. The 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 Hellenistic widows, the other others, <laughs> you know, they are yeah. Hellenistic and widows. And the response of the church is to bring Hellenistic deacons to now lead the problem. Right. So mm-hmm. so they actually they take the keys and they hand it to the others and say, well, you, we, you tell us how to fix this now. Right. Yeah. And then I have Paul in Galatians as their mother. I'm thinking of Beverly Gaventa's work on this, the, the our mother, St. Paul, her beautiful book on, mm, on this mm, thing that mm-hmm. Paul, I am in childbearing pains for you. So Paul positions himself. Yes. As, as yes. So yeah. the thing is you made a comment and you said, I'm not saying that, men need to act like women. <laughs> and so where I, what I want to ask is, are, are you sure? <laughs> because Well. <laughs> so, um, so that's what I mean when I say I, I want to encourage I, I you a little less I appreciate you bringing me that to that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I am saying that. Um, I think we have some very, uh, obviously, some socialized ways of understanding men and women Mm-hmm. Um, in let's, let's just limit it to America, right? So 20, I know you're in Canada, but let's limit this to 20th century, 21st century mm-hmm. America. You know, this is the, the America I know, the church mm-hmm. I know. We have, um, these, you know, socialized understandings that seem to prohibit men mm-hmm. from doing these things. So yes, I do want them to act that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I I do want them if if Jesus and Paul um, mm-hmm. can take their cues from mothers, you know, and and uh, use those analogies, um, then I think I, yes, I absolutely do. Um, and uh, but I also want to reserve the idea that there are certain things only women can bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know that yes. this is not just you know gendering by society there are um because and i'm really building on cheryl sanders here where she talks about um uh women you know as the mother of all living mm. eve is named after the fall as mm. the mother of all living Mm-hmm. And and she, uh, you know, it's not that just that she's, you know, we we tend to think of her as having, okay, she, it's all kind of gets redemptive because eventually her seed will produce Jesus, but Cheryl Sanders yeah. says, in now that this curse has been of death has come that de- and death is now working in mm-hmm. creation, the fact that she still gives birth that this woman mm. still brings life into the world is prophetic Absolutely. and standing against that. Um, I think that also might help us to understand that whole 
women save through childbearing thing. I'm going to have to look at that though. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. uh, but, um, but I, that really stood at when I was reading what Cheryl Sanders had said about women that as mother, that really um, changed the way I was thinking about, about that. And I do think there are things that mothers um, and I'm not restricting it to women who've given birth, obviously. Um, I, mm-hmm. I recognize all of that, but there are things that only women bring to the table in the way that there are things that only men are. And those may be different from culture to culture, depending on how men and women have been um, socialized. Um, but maybe there are even things genetically, there are genetic differences, you know, I mean, uh, you know, so there are maybe there are things there even that um, uh, and the the clue is women being able to give birth um, and and challenge death by bringing mm-hmm. life into the world. They challenge death. And I'm not I'm also not sure. Well, let me rephrase this. I'm pretty sure that's what the woman with the issue of blood and Jairus daughter text is about. Mm-hmm. because of the number 12, because mm-hmm. she's been unable. I mean, she's had yeah. this hemorrhage for 12 years. Um, she always gets written about as if she's an elderly woman or yeah. depicted that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but the juxtaposition of her against this young girl who is 12 years old and may not get to be woman. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. this woman who probably has not even been able to bear children that's what her healing is about, I think. Mm. And so I think, again, that's where, you know, the, the gospel writers and Luke in particular is the text I usually go to for that are saying there's something very significant about yeah. Yeah. women in their humanity, in their womanhood, in, um, in uh, their sex versus gender kinds of things. You know, it's, mm. it's, there's, yeah. there's something very significant there that they bring to the table. And so, and I, you know, I'm, you know, I once was young and now I'm old. And so I find this, even in the way I'm dealing with students now, most of my students now are much younger, um, but I'll bring them in for like academic probation meetings. And I find this kind of, while I'm very firm, but it's this kind of mothering kind of thing that I'm, I'm not even conscious I'm doing it. Mm-hmm when I'm dealing and I, and that has caught, because I'm now dealing with younger students again, that has caused me to kind of reflect back on my own approach to teaching and um, leading and, and all the things I do. I think there has been this very distinct female thing about that, that, um, so those are not things I think I want men to, (laughs) you know, I'm not saying I want men to, they can't. yeah. 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 So. And what what we what they can do, right? I think there are ways in which men can be womanly up mm, to a point yeah. in certain mm-hmm. ways. Yeah. But some of it I think comes to deferring to the women who are with us, yes. who are bracketed Absolutely. with us in ministry. And so like what we and of course this is not what David is suggesting at all, but what we want to make sure we're clear yeah. about is we don't want to say men can absorb kind of all of the mothering womanly characteristics and therefore women are once again marginal right right? like there are ways in which the only way forward is a deferral to deborah the only way forward is a deferral to mary or to kim and i think that 
this is why for me, the ordination of women is so vital, right? You know, Baltasar has this, and I know you've read it, this kind of wonderful and terrifying reflection on masculinity and femininity in the church. And he says, yeah. the reason that women are not ordained to the priesthood is that they take primacy in the work of God in the world, that their work is too important to be mm-hmm. trapped inside the ecclesial ecclesiastical office. And I'm like, yeah, no, <laughs> like I hear what you're saying. <laughs> right. is, you're, right. he, it's deeply Marian, you know, it, it's, yeah. there is something about it that's moving in the right direction, that there is a, a way in which women historically know God in a way that men rarely have done. Right. Yeah. And yet to make, to draw from that, therefore we should keep them from the office as if we're protecting them or honoring them in that way right, is right. to do, put the church at a disadvantage because I, I agree with, and I, I think we're all on the same page here, but just to name it, I think, yes, of course, even outside the camp, these mothers, these women have done incredible work, right. That have, has had long lasting effect, but the fact that they were forced to be outside the camp meant that the stuff that was happening in the camp was deeply damaging in ways it wouldn't have had to have been. Right, like yeah, all yeah. kinds of abuses and corruption that mothers could have fixed, right? That yeah. mothers could have addressed, could have spoken to, that yeah. they just weren't present in the room. They weren't in the room when those decisions were being made, and the consequences of mm-hmm. that are enormous. That's right. And I was I was once in a in a financial well, it was a meeting of um of uh and I won't mention any names here. But I was at a meeting in, at a David's school. David's going to try to get you to mention names. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I will text it to you later. Um, but I was in this meeting where we were discussing the um, the services and things that were provided at the school. So there's, you know, uh, people that deal with recruitment and admissions and then people who deal with financial aid and all this kind of stuff. And so the woman who was over financial aid and did an outstanding job in all that she did talked about needing to help students not take on so much debt. And, you know, because when these, she, she said, when these students come in, I just, I feel for them. I feel for what their future is going to be if they take on all this debt. Well, of course, number one, that's not a capitalistic approach to, um, you know, seminary administration. (laughs) And the, so getting back to that earlier um, Frank Maggia kind of thing, but what uh, she was actually uh, kind of called out on it by a another administrator there, not anyone who had any oversight of her. And he said, well, you just feel that way because you're a mother. Ooh. And I just... I was in charge just of that like meeting, Caiaphas, so I just he's prophesying. Yes. <laughs> yeah. so I just looked at him and I said, "Yes, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly." And I think that's something that she can bring that she does yeah. bring in financial aid that's much needed. There mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you know we're going to say to students, you know, well, you can't come. It we but as a mother, you find ways. You you see that they're. Um, their long-term uh, care and well-being, mm-hmm. you know, uh, is, you know, what it, 
you you can never forget the the child in your womb. You know, you can't mm. can a mother forget her nursing child. That's right? all God has to go to when he says, This is what my faithfulness is like. That's right. It's, it's like that only. That's more, right. So. And so um you know, but that attitude that that that's a negative thing to bring to that conversation because it, that it doesn't belong in the conversation right. is so revealing. I think it is revealing, man. What a story. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I have so many. And then there's the one I opened up. <laughs> I opened up the, um, the thing about, you know, these women can be easily cut in the budget who are doing just this clerical work mm. because women they're just work. hirelings, mm. you know, no, they're the ones who've been there serving and caring long-term Mm-hmm. Um, they're certainly not in it for the money. You know, I know what yeah. the pay scale is in those kinds of roles. So, but they're doing this because they care about the flock. They care about the ministry of the, of the Lord and they serve. Um, but they're, you know, well, they're just hirelings. No, they're doing the shepherding, the long-term care, laying down their lives for the sheep in a way that the, the leaders who come and go, they have no, they're not even able to do. You don't know someone um, and, and in a way that a mother can know. And so I do think that that is something that that um, needs to, that makes a contribution at, and um, it changes the entire discussion. It changes yeah. everything. It does. Um, yeah. Yeah. One example of that, just that I want to name before we before we move on, is that image from Paul that David brought up earlier. You know, Paul Paul says in one place in Corinthians, you know, I planted Apollos water, yeah. God gave the increase, which is a very male image, the seed being sown. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But he also says, I'm in the pains of childbirth again. Right. Right. And whenever we have ministry models that dominate where the metaphors quite literally are metaphors of seed sowing and aggression. Like the, we will end up with that kind of distortion, right? We will end up with that, that kind of hyper masculinization of the Mm -hmm. image of God and therefore of the work of the church. And the result will be, I mean, one of the things, the ironies about all this, that, that the devil must just be constantly laughing about is that the churches that have probably been the most suppressing of women are the ones that are the first to lament about the breakdown of the family in society. Mm. Absolutely. They see the consequence of what's a home like without a mother or a father, but they can't see, well, what is, what happens in your church when there's not a mother or a woman who's who's given authoritative voice? Yeah. Yeah. That is so, um, that to me is such a, that stark, uh, just, um, bipolar way. Mm-hmm. I don't know if bipolar and stark should ever be in a conversation, uh, sentence <laughs> together, but anyway, that kind of schizophrenic bipolar kind of way of understanding. Um, and, you know, and what's really, you know, and Paul, bless his heart, you know, since I'm in the deep South here, Paul, bless his heart, does, you know, try to look at that, you know, there's, there's the home and then there's the church and all of that. And there is this kind of merging kind of thing happening in that. And in that kind of messy way, he's discussing all of that. But yeah, these same people who, who talk about that, the breakdown of the family, um, they're the ones 
that are in some cases, not only are they keeping women um, from ministry and keeping the church unhealthy as a result, then that same model gets transferred into the home. Yes, right. Where there, then there's abuse in the home, abuse yeah. of the spouse, abuse of the children because of this heavy-handed kind of uh, warped, um, yeah. sinful, tainted with death model. And um, so I, this is this has got my mind just racing here. But I, there's there's just so much of that, and I I. Uh, Chris knows a little bit of my thoughts on this, though I never really produced the whole chapter for him on this. But anyway, <laughs> so Ma Jod in The Grapes mm-hmm. of Wrath, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to me, is this Holy Spirit figure. Yes, yes, yes. You know, the, you want to go to Casey, you know, who's speaking in tongues, <laughs> has right. this, but it's really Ma Jod who is embodying as a mother what the spirit does. The spirit keeps us tied to our roots. We don't forget those roots and we're tied to that. And we are Jodes. We are those people, but we have to keep moving and we have to keep going. And, and when the men, as she says, are giving up because they see life in just fits and jerks, mm-hmm. you know, women have this epic long view. Yeah. And um, mm-hmm. so I think, you know, I wouldn't, I don't want to do, even though David wants me to, I don't want to do extreme uh, characterizations of the church where I would mm. say it's just been in a, you know, it's all shipwrecked because we haven't had mm. that. But I think some of the mess that needs to be cleaned up yes. is mm. a result of that lack of what women and mothers bring to that. Now, mm. in the Church of God in Christ, for instance, they've sort of seen that need. And the you know you have these very authoritative figures in those churches who are church mothers. Yeah. Um, you know they have women's work, and they don't necessarily believe in most cases that women should be pastors. But you have these church mothers who have almost full authority in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, the pastor can't really do anything unless the church mother is on board with that. Yeah. And. Um, so that's another whole kind of uh, thing that conversation that can mm. be brought in here, you know, that I haven't even really explored other, you know, there are obviously Anthea Butler and others have really looked at that. But um, anyway, so that's, I, th- I think what I would want to say is that I do want men to be more caring and nurturing and, Mm. learn from mothers in that and let and defer to mothers in that and to women in that. But I also want women to be able to lead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want women to be able to lead in that, not just be the advisor and resource. And and I think that I, uh, (laughs) there was a moment when, once the question had left my (laughs) mouth that I was like, wait, there's a whole side to this question that I wasn't wanting to, to imply that I was thinking. Um, you know, I, I think I'm very conscious of maleness being a construct that, that yeah. we are now imposing on two things. So I, I feel like as a as a, a man who is a leader in the church that I I have to do a kind of two step, right? Uh, and and like yeah. just to give you a bit of biography uh, that may not interest anybody, but like I was just appointed to the lead role in my church a year ago. Um, my first 
kind of move was to ask my board to allow me to share the role. Um, and I then asked them that we appoint a woman to that role. So I'm now in a situation where where we have a, a male and female lead pastors of our, of our church. So, and this has been really eye-opening for me, even thinking of myself as going, okay, I'm, I'm wanting to step away. I want to step back a little bit. But now working with somebody else, we're, we're seeing through different eyes. But what's fascinating then is just a couple of days ago, we were, um, we were uh, at a lecture with Beth Allison Barr. And, uh, and, yeah, and yeah. she was obviously talking about you know, a story you'd be well familiar with. But what's, what was just so probably is behind why I wanted to push you on the question was when it, when it pushed to the, to, the, to the question and answer session of the evening – just young woman after young woman after young woman saying, mm-hmm. where is my place in the church, right? Yeah, because, yeah. And, it, and, and I came away from it thinking there's a two-step move. There's the need to make space for the women. And I really hope my question didn't imply that men could oh, no, act no, like women no. and still not need women. No, but no. I feel like there's a need for men to step back and reconsider how their construct of maleness is damaging the church because yeah. you know using luke alone but that but i think it's in paul as well that Absolutely. there is this deep need for you, you know i mean we talked just recently with with frank he talked about this annihilation of the self uh that that, that is that is really that the Holy Spirit is fighting against is how do we yeah. preserve this? And, and we found ourselves in conversation at a variety of places, as you might well imagine, but then getting to, you know, it's really struck me Romans 16 where Paul starts at the end of this huge treatise on all these things. He starts thanking women and slaves for all this phenomenal work that they're yeah. doing. He's identifying and pointing it out that look at the work these people are doing. And, uh, yeah. And I feel that call, really. That's that's what I was kind of, and I feel like you did. That's what I wanted to coax out of you, is that yeah. call for us to do that double step and uh, and create that. You yeah. Know. You know, I was, uh, I think it was actually during quarantine, um, you know, quarantine, we all call it that, you know, during quarantine, <laughs> I um, read Mary Beard's um, book about women mm. in power. Mm. Um probably wasn't a great time to read that actually (laughs) because I was already kind of pent up, you know, but, but she says in there, um, you know, essentially you can't, there's not going to be room for women to lead in structures that are already coded as male. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's part of what we're getting at that we, we, um, you know, we've already coded this thing in a certain way, and it has been for millennia. Um, I think what we see in the New Testament is a complete restructuring, right? It's or a new construction, even just a new construction. But we've taken it back to coding it as male, and so then women have to. The word she uses is they can't. They can, can't really fit. Women can't fit into that very well without acting like the male model. So mm-hmm. some of the most recent research, and I don't want to get into all this because it's like way too much, but I've been working on this paper for Society of Pentecostal Studies next week. And um, with this young Native American scholar, and we've been looking at um, intersections of early Pentecostalism and and even later Pentecostalism with the very notorious boarding or residential school models. Um, And that has opened up all kinds of 
wormed cans of worms. I was, I didn't even know existed, you know, so I've been, you know, looking at home missions um, and how we adapted that and really just adopted it wholesale. But one of the things that happens in that is that women find safe space as matrons and teachers Mm -hmm. in those schools, but it's coded male. And so Mm -hmm. they are less matron and mother than they are, um, you know, following the coded male model, um, which in its harshest form says, you know, kill the Indian, save the child. Mm -hmm. No mother would ever say that, you know? And so when women try even to push, even tried to push back on that, they get kind of mansplained away. You know, you don't really know what you're talking about. Um, And so, uh, so they end up becoming complicit. Yeah. Yeah. If Mm -hmm. not chief among the, um, the people who are committing the atrocities. And so when anyone fits into these, and that's, and when I say coded male, it's not the, um, it's the worst of the coding of the male coding, mm-hmm. you know, the, um, the ultimate John Wayne uh, model. Right. So, mm-hmm. but women having to fit into that in order to even have a ministry yeah. or fulfill mm-hmm. a vocation, it, they become the oppressor. And so they are, they are sinned against, you know, um, and then that becomes this kind of generational sin that is then visited upon innocent children. And I think that's a great example of how if we, if we don't, um, if we don't allow the whole conversation at the very beginning to be constructed with men and women at the table um, with equal voice at the table, Mm -hmm. not just women as in advisory capacity or whatever, but um, then we are going to code our structures in ways that eventually become sinful or can have the potential to be. Oh, I, th- yeah. I think that's exactly right. It's yeah. a, I, one of the things I love, Kim, so much about, about you, about your work, is how, how nuanced you are, right? I mean, these conversations, as you know, I mean, you know better than David and I put together, <laughs> how you get forced into simplicities, right? Into banal mm-hmm. contrasts. When in fact, and, and some of this is your, your training as a historian, I know. Some of it is just your sensibility, but you you have this sense that that's just not how reality works, right? I mean, things are are on the ground, unbelievably complex and hard to pull apart. Yeah. You know, I I grew up in a a patriarchal culture, but the women in my family were unbelievably strong. My grandmother absolutely ruled the roost, yeah. and she did it in ways that were patriarchal. If you're studying it from the outside, you would recognize all the marks of patriarchy. But living inside of it, <laughs> you knew exactly like the dynamics that were at play. There's this wonderful yeah. story Howard Thurman tells about, you know, he was a mentor for MLK and others. I mean, Howard Thurman has this incredible story about when he's 12 years old, he's ready to be baptized. He goes to the church board, Baptist church, tells them he's he wants to be baptized. He's been saved. And they are like, mm, they're, they're insufficiently impressed. And so they send him home. And he goes home to his, his father had died. So he goes home to his mother and grandmother 
Nancy, I think was his grandmother's name. And she like immediately gets him by the hand, takes him right back up to that board or who they're meeting with other candidates. She interrupts the service and says, what is wrong with you? <laughs> like, like if Jesus didn't turn this boy away, you're not turning him away. And they went right then to the water. Right? Like, yeah. So there's a, there's a way in which on the ground, of course, right. Not only are women sinned against, not only do they sin, but even in structures that are overcoated male, there are still ways in which there are women like, Howard Thurman's grandmother or mine who find a way. Absolutely. <laughs> I, yeah. I love, I love that the mischievousness of the spirit kind of finding a way in spite of everything. Yeah. I think that's exactly, um, exactly right. And I think, you know, I often hear these um, stories of people uh, talking about their mother or their grandmother in those, or an aunt or something, you know, it's in the, pretty much that way, you know, and it's yes, but when she spoke, when she did this and then women end up being, um, I think one of the things that has happened again, it's kind of a byproduct byproduct of this relegation and negation and being sinned against mm-hmm. and all of those things They they end up being so strong, so yeah. strong and so confident. Um, I mean, I, I read, um, or heard once that a study had been done about what is the the most a body a human body can physically endure, and you know it's one of these, uh, you know I don't even know what, I can't remember these sports events where they're doing all these multiple things and mm. you know the Iron Man kinds of things, except a woman giving birth <laughs> is the most yes. pain. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, difficulty that a human body can endure. So, uh, you know, that to me is just kind of this uh, metaphor for the strength that uh, because of what women have had to to push themselves to do. So for women to have a ministry, they have had to do some pretty incredible things yes. and go against so much. Um, and so there is this huge level of endurance and confidence. And I talk about it in terms of women navigating their way around obstacles, mm. but also negotiating space for themselves, Yes, you know? And so, okay, well, you're not going to let me do that. So you can get, I, you, you'll let me do this. Mm-hmm. So entitled, it'll be this, but I'm going to make it. Do, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making it what God has called me to do. Yeah. Right. And so, but that takes a lot of um, skill. And frankly, um, it's exhausting. It is, yeah, I'm sure. And this is what I think where we find a lot of women uh, now, and one of the problems with it, getting back to the the whole thing, for the church, what I think this does, if we don't find the healing that's needed, is we are, yeah, I mean, I've already said it, but we're a sick church. Mm-hmm. And, um, and part of the reason we're sick is not just that over half of the people in our churches cannot fully participate as they're called to, if, if they're called to that. Um, but the ones who are doing it, forcing themselves into situations of pushing their way through navigating around and all of that can't really flourish because they're so tired. They're so exhausted. Mm-hmm. They don't have the collegiality they need. They don't have the mentoring they need. They don't have the things that can uh, I mean, and it's difficult f- 
for young men as well. I've taught enough young male ministers. I know what they're up against as well. Um, but for women, it's almost like I'm, you know, I'm doing this. Uh, this is going to be, this is going to be a hard life Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I'm probably not ever going to find that. Um, and, uh, and I do think the model that Jesus and the new Testament gives us would prevent that lack of flourishing on women's part and -hmm. on the church's part. Mm -hmm. And we would be a help, a more whole, healthier kind of, um, kind of church as a result of that. Um, so, um, well, I don't I, know. And, and the other thing is that it does, uh, patriarchy damages men as well. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that has to Absolutely. be acknowledged mm-hmm, yeah. that patriarchal structures are damaging to men as well. And, and we only even acknowledge that or see it when it is so far gone and the atrocity is so great yeah. And then we say, oh, you know, and we have this horrible, you know, it's like what happens after a school shooting or whatever. Yeah. Oh, goodness. It's so bad. We need to do something about that. Whatever. And then it just falls off the radar and mm-hmm. to the next horrible atrocity happens. So, um, well, I, I, I mean, I, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I, you, in the, I think it was the last lecture you talked about Mother Elizabeth Dabney, who's oh, a, yeah who has what she calls a ministry of suffering. And you drew this connection between Jesus mother and mothers in the church and specifically Pentecostal mothers like Rebecca Barr and Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Dabney who are suffering. They're laboring. They're in the pains of childbirth in prayer. So as we start to wind down, talk to us a little bit about what you see in that ministry in particular, the ministry, her story, Dabney's story and Mm -hmm what what it tells us about the kind of work women have had to bear, but in fact have also given birth to. Yeah, I was so struck by that. And I knew a little about Dabney and had read bits and pieces. Um, but then I thought, I'm going to explore that. I'm going to read what she said. And um, it's not a pretty story. She, you know, it's, it's, um, it's very difficult what she endures physically. Um, I mean, she fasted 72 hours a week for at least two years. Sometimes it's, it's hard to tell. She was called her covenant was for three years. And she is one point says the fasting was for two years. It's kind of hard to determine if it went on, but she was praying every day at the same time for three years and then going to the church for 72 hours a week, fasting and praying on her knees. And this was a garage, a converted garage. This was not, there was no carpet. There's no, you know. And so physically, um, it took a huge toll on her body. She's being persecuted. She's been labeled as a witch. She's been labeled, being labeled as insane. So there's this mental suffering as well that she endures. Um, and at the risk of making a bad analogy, what I kept thinking about, I didn't write about this or talk about it there, but what I kept thinking about was at the end, she was very disappointed that when God told her to go home, um, 
she thought he was disappointed in her. Mm. And then she realized after she did go home and she had this profound experience in the, in the spirit, um, a funny sideline. She says she was had, had on these new black patent shoes and she danced them to pieces when she, mm-hmm. when, mm-hmm. you know, she, when she was released from the covenant, she realized it was three years to the day. But what was interesting to me was that, that disappointment she felt. It was almost like this kind of stock, um, Stockholm syndrome kind of thing. Yeah. She had become so, she was so in love with her captor that she was, um, uh, afraid of being released from that, you know. Of course, she went on and had this very powerful prayer ministry, but it was a ministry that she over and over again labeled as a ministry of suffering. She was doing it on behalf; it was intercessory, it was on behalf of the church and the people, and um, uh, and that's first of all that that seems to me to be something that has that has uh, been completely lost in, I don't want to, I think there's value in many, many way things that we've heard about praying, you know, many models, you know, spending time with the Lord before the Lord, resting in the Lord and uh, soaking prayer, all of those kinds of things. But none of those talk about it in terms of suffering. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, um, and pain. And so that's the first thing I think that this raises for us. And it really challenges us to is, have we lost some, an understanding of prayer that, uh, it's Gethsemane prayer, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, um, prolonged agonizing prayer that, uh, you know, and and I've I've always loved this phrase in Pentecostal circles: praying through. Yes, 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 yes. Right. It's going somewhere, mm-hmm. but it's a and it's a journey, but it's not an easy journey. I think we've lost that in a lot of our understandings of prayer. So, in her body, then, in that suffering that she endures physically, um, the renouncing. You know, in this, it's very monastic, isn't it? She's renouncing luxury she's renouncing food she's renouncing her rights to certain things and in that the suffering that it brings it brings her into this profound relationship with god um Mm. that bears you know lots of fruit Mm. um and uh but that's not what she, she she does sort of at the end talk about you know some fruit but the majority of the of what it means to pray through is about this this agony, the difficulty yeah. of it all. Yeah. And yet she's lifted up, um, and her her story was they couldn't keep it in print. The assemblies of God could not keep it mm. in print. Mm. Um, and pastors are buying it for everybody in their congregation at a time when they're not sure whether they should be ordaining women yeah. or. African American people, you right. know, and, and yet this woman is with racism in all other kinds of ways, and yet again, we see this—the spirit finding a way, right? In spite yeah. of all of that, prejudice against women, deep racism, you know, built yeah. into the structures, the deep structures of the faith, and yet 
her story. I mean, just so much Jesus in it, right? I mean, the yes. heart of yeah. it is undeniable. Yeah. So that really, it really, um, really spoke to me and challenged me in my under, you know, what I thought about ministry and prayer. Um, because, you know, I've all, I've been such an advocate for women and for their well being and for their, um, affirmation and, and all of those things. Um, but it's really hard to advocate for women to have the right to suffer, <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't want that for, I'm, you know, a mother doesn't want that for her children, but yet um, it it's, I mean, it's incredibly scriptural, but it's also, and it's incredibly Jesus. Um, uh, and I think it's, it just challenges a lot of, a lot in Pentecostalism about our, our avoidance of suffering. Yeah. Now, Absolutely. and that's not what people, even in you know, after Dabney's ministry is really in the 30s and 40s. But by the time I'm growing up, that's not something that people are talking about in Pentecostal church. Uh, you know, avoiding suffering. You know, we admired those people. We looked up to those people. They were saints, Absolutely. You know, because of that. And so, but I don't, I don't really hear that anymore. So we're quite anemic, I think. Um, yeah. I, I, anemic really is such me. a powerful word for it, right? Like our, it's like we, yeah, man, that's, that's such a stunning way of phrasing it. I, I want to come back to one, one last okay. question, but David, let me let you weigh in first. Yeah. Even just building off the, the, your comment right at the end there, but the anemic nature of it, I am struck listening to you, uh, you know, impacted by the, the cruciformity of what you're talking about. Mm, yes, you know, I, yeah. I was thinking about the, the, even just the arc of our conversation today, it's just deeply impacting, but the, the, we started with the conversation about healing and we're bringing it into land with a conversation about suffering and yeah. women as the archetypes of this suffering and healing. I mean, th- this is cruciformity that suffering leads to healing and so you really, as I'm listening to you, I'm just struck. I don't really have, this is not forming into a question, just more of an observation that uh, in true academic form, <laughs> that it's not really a question, yeah. but, but, but I'm just struck by, you know, the, the whole now, you know, the, the lectures that you did, the whole conversation today, that, that our ignorance towards women functionally becomes an ignorance towards cruciformity. Um, and, and that should terrify us <laughs> as, yeah. as people of the church. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I've thought about this so much. How, what are we doing with Jesus? <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, I think people are a little embarrassed by Jesus and, but they love Jesus I think, and uh, <laughs> but I think what's happened in some ways is probably because of a penal substitution model of atonement, right? We're just letting Jesus do all the heavy lifting for us on that. Mm. Mm. So Jesus can have that cruciform life, but I don't have so that I don't have to, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but try to you know try to tell Paul that. Is in Second Corinthians that list, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and um, try to tell Mary that, who is her heart, you know, 
is is uh, you know is pierced, and yeah. she's at the cross with yeah. her, her her dead son who's mm-hmm. been horribly crucified. Um, and so, uh, I think it says an awful lot about our Christ, you know our Christology, our understanding of salvation, um, and and our understanding of the the spirit filled life. Surely the spirit wouldn't lead me into suffering. Surely this can't be the will of God because it's difficult. This, um, and I mean, Hebrews 11, you know, 12 tells us that can't be true. Right. I mean, it's so it, it, so it says a lot again about how we read, um, how we're reading scripture and, um, yeah, so that that whole narrative of Jesus is is he get he does that so I don't have to, yeah, which I think yeah. is just totally missing uh, what it means to take up the cross. What does it mean to be a disciple? What is it you know all of that? And um, so mm. and yeah, I want I want to end with that. Kimberly, because I think what you're saying about the way we see Jesus and therefore the way we see God in ourselves and the way we read scripture is bound up with this, right? Yeah, so I, yeah. I'm, I want to start my question to you by referring back to what you shared with me about what Hollis had written mm-hmm. about Mary, you know, so toward the end of his life, and you can feel free to fill in details as you like, but, you know, toward the end of his life, he writes this reflection on Mary's experience of Jesus' life and death. And and I'm going to read just an excerpt of it that I have yeah. here in hand because of what I'm writing right now. I might get my tissue here. <laughs> it's, in, it's incredible, <laughs> right? And then I want to move from Mary to the woman at the well. And I want to ask oh, you yeah. to, con- to to end our time to, together today talking a bit about this woman who I think has caught a lot of the misjudgment, right? The the male yeah. coding has shaped the way that we read her story. Yeah. Yeah. Although the text itself says none of those things. But anyway, let me let me start with what Hollis said. So he says, he's talking in this particular chapter about her standing at the foot of the cross. And he says, she feels this stab of pain. Now the final words of Simeon's prophecy rush through her heart like a dagger. Mary thought, I now I know what those words meant. Every nail in his hands and feet was driven into my heart. It bleeds as profusely as his hands and feet do. Is this the way that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed? Are these nails the scapels that lay back the tissues of the heart, exposing the innermost thoughts? They certainly expose the hearts of our rulers. Corruption pours out of these wounds like the blood out of my son. And then he he continues that reflection. And at the very end, he says to us, the readers, listen to her heart, Mary's heart, a heart that in its grief has compressed the lifetime of her son. Mm-hmm. This this is what we're discussing, right? That there's there's a way in which this mother and mothers and women suffer. And some of that is imposed on them by the way we've socialized men and women. Yeah, yeah. Some of it is forced on them by the way bodies work. Yeah. The yeah. monthly period, the the pain of pregnancy, the risk yeah. of childbirth. The the relative weakness of the woman's body against the males. Yeah, yeah. Right? So there are ways in which nature itself has 
put the woman at a quote-unquote disadvantage in a dog-eat-dog, male-dominated, violent world, right? And it's telling that only that heart can take the fullness of the life mm. of God. Yeah. Only a heart that knows that kind of weakness, that kind of prolonged pain. You know, I, I, I can't shake what you quoted from the, the, the novel earlier, that men work in fits and jerks. Right? Like this this yeah. kind of the, the giving of the seed happens quickly and they move on. Yeah. And women bear it. Their bodies have been preparing to bear it. And then they bear it all the way through to life, to new life. And so with, with that, I'd love for hear any comments you have about, about that, Hollis's reflections on Mary, the ways in which some of the pain women have to bear is natural. It's not just socialized. Like it's, it's yeah, built into yeah. the way that it's inherent, works, right? It's yeah. inherent in the womanly experience. And then if you could end it for today with what does this have to do with the way we read the story of the woman at the well? Mm. Oh goodness. Well, I can barely, you know, when I said I was getting a tissue, I was half teasing, but I can, I can barely hear those words without, weeping, you know, and part of that is because of my love for Hollis. Sure. Um, and um the way he, you know, the way he read text and those things. Um and he I think he did uh, he did see her as paradigmatic. And I will never forget, I'm not sure if I ever ever even told you this, Chris, but I audited a class with him one time before it was while I was working on a PhD, it was before I started teaching at the seminary that he did on uh, just a one hour seminar on suffering in Paul. Mm-mm. And, you know, you just see that on the schedule and, you know, you, I've got to be in that I'll, room, I'll be there. you know, yes, yes. well, what was so profound um, was that his wife, Beulah was in the room with us mm-hmm. in every class. And Beulah was at home at this point, but already um, had dementia. And she, she was in a wheelchair, and he would push her up that wheelchair ramp out the, the side of the seminary to, it was an upstairs uh, uh, classroom in the, uh, what's now the Gauls building. And she would sit there in class while he taught. And, you know, at the beginning of class, we would inter- try to interact with her and everything. And it was, she was very sweet, but it was clear, you know, that she had dementia um, and there's this story that they, she was, before she had to be, she was put into a nursing home and then he later brought her back home and cared for her. But she was already in, it was about the same time period, they were having a wedding anniversary party for them. And she was there and pretty unaware. And suddenly she began singing at this party, the way of the cross leads home. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, so Hollis's reading of that, I think, and he wrote, he wrote that about that time period. Mm. He was writing that now that I think about it, because he handed it to me after a class one that I was team teaching with him before it was ever published. Um, And so he, he said once that 
he, he went to seminary, you know, at Columbia after graduating from Emmanuel and then, he, um, and then Presbyterian College. And then he went to Columbia and did a um, MDiv and um, before he ever went to Emory to do the PhD. And he said, he told me that during that time period, and he said this a lot, it wasn't just to me, but his preaching professor said that you should never preach without the cross in view. Of course, this is a reform school, and so that yeah. is standard fare. But Hollis took that very, 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 really took that to heart. And so I think Mary embodies that yeah. in such a profound way because um, she experiences it in her body. It's prophesied to her. We get these glimpses where you're wondering has she forgotten that? Does she not know? You know, uh, but then there, you know, then there are these times when she has this insight, you know, whatever he says to do, he tells you to do do it. You know, she has this, she has this insight. And then of course, Luke makes sure that we know she's up there tarrying and waiting as well. She's in that room with them, you know? And so um, I, I think Hollis, I would love to have been able to talk to him about this. Is is she is she that model for us? It, does she embody the spirit-filled prophetic life? Um and uh yeah, so uh Mary and so Jesus' confrontation with this woman at the well, I hadn't thought about those connections much, but um I know what Hollis said about it. He said uh she asked questions in Luke or in John four uh, to show us that um, religious leaders aren't the only ones who can ask dumb questions <laughs> because at following Nicodemus, right? Yeah. Yeah. But what, so that encounter for me is so, um, I mean, think about that. That's a really early encounter. Mm-hmm in the story of Jesus with someone who has been labeled as other, a Samaritan woman who, you know, speaking of menstruation has been labeled. She's a menstruant from the grave. That's Mm -hmm. what the the law said about Samaritan women. Um, She's as unclean as they get. Um, And so she is, he's waiting for her and has this encounter where he, uh, and I mean, Hollis said that. I don't think she's asking dumb questions. I think it shows that she's, and I don't think he really meant that either, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that she is asking profound questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is uh, engaging, engaging her. I think he recognizes also in in the way he talks to her, how she's been sinned against. Yes. Yes. You know, and... And then she becomes, uh, like Mary, this embodiment. She's an embodiment for us of what it means to be an evangelist. Yep. Mm. Um, and I think as Chris Thomas says, she's the most successful evangelist in John's gospel. You know, she, uh, she wins the whole village. No. So I think that um, that's a, it's a really, um, that connection is really an important one. Um you know what would it look like if we did if we did a basic Christian training manual using examples of women? Here's how you evangelize. Yeah. 
Here's how you, um, here's what it means to prophesy. Here's, here's what it means. You know, there's so many of those things that we've looked over and we've seen these women as incidental right, right. in the Jesus story. Mm-hmm. And they're often unnamed, obviously, um, which as a historian drives me crazy because you can't, I don't know their names. Right. But um, there's so many stories. And even in the Old Testament where everything turns on the words of a woman yeah. or like yeah. Naaman's story, mm-hmm. it all turns mm-hmm. on those, the words of that, that slave, that enslaved young woman or, or girl. And um, it all turns on that. Um, so, yeah. What, what were you thinking? What are you, what are you connections you say? I, I have to preach it Sunday. So I'm okay. <laughs> wondering what you would bring to it. But I, I think one thing you said just now that, it's striking to me. I'd never considered before that Nicodemus' story is is fit right between the story of Mary and the Canaan yes. story and this woman and what she shares. So you get the water turned to wine and then the water of life framed around Nicodemus. So those two days around this one night where these, these two women are standing in the light, they understand who they're talking with. Yeah. They are yeah. obedient and calling others to obey. They're, they're, they're turning not just their own lives, but the lives of everyone around them to, to Jesus in a way that Nicodemus cannot yet. Right. So he's being mothered in, in, by both of these women, Nicodemus is, and, and we that's as right, readers yeah. are, you know, we yeah, that's are. right. Um, that's, that's at least one of the things I think John, by the way he's telling us the story is he keeps reminding us, you know, it's these women who know. And, and then of course, at the end of the gospel, Mary Magdalene, yeah. She's the one who stays at the tomb. Peter, speaking of fits and jerks, Peter and the beloved disciple come and leave. They come and yeah. see the tomb is empty and they leave. Yeah. And she stays. And, and she stays. Yeah. And, um, you know, I heard um, an English professor talking about the woman, the story of the Samaritan woman once as being, um, you know, it's a well, a well story, mm. um, which is an archetype that you see often. And so, um you know, in the Old Testament, you've got well stories with Moses at the well and yeah. and uh, Jacob. Um, and then you should have one with Isaac, but he just sends his servant, you know. So the well, ser- <laughs> well stories tell us a lot about the main character. Moses is a rescuer. Yeah. Isaac is passive. Jacob pulls the lid off himself. You know, he's he yeah. rushes to, and he's impulsive. Mm. But what does Jesus do? He it's a and these are always bride, bride and bridegroom stories. Right. Yes. You know, so Jesus engages her as the person and the human she is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. And how our, we've got to stop for now, but that (laughs) our reading of that text comes with all kinds of assumptions that, you know, she's been, that she's promiscuous and that she's, she's an outcast because even in her society, she's known to be unworthy. But of course the text says none of those things, right? no. And it is, we have no idea how it came to be that she had lost these husbands. Did they leave her? Did they die? We don't know. What we do know is that she, she's the one who turns the village, right? And that they believe her when she comes and says, her words are believed. That's right. And, um, you know, she is existing in a time period like Mary, like the woman with the issue of blood, like all of these women. The safety net is the men. Yeah. That is the safety net. And without that safety net, net, you can't exist. And so in that way, she has been, uh, 
you know, she's, she has been made dependent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and because that without uh, a man to care for her without that and, you know, but yet, yet our reading of it has made her um, and so many others um, as, you know, promiscuous and, and all these, uh, all these things. And so, um, but Jesus in get what always impresses me. And I think about there is um, Jesus engages her and he doesn't say to her, like, like he says, to Nicodemus, how are you a teacher of the law? And you don't get this, you know, right. he's engaging her where she is on her level in the conversation about worship, you right. know, and how we worship and where we worship. And then he says, you know, you worship in spirit and truth. And you've got in the prologue, grace and truth come. Right. right. So, so it taught, he, this is such an important conversation that it ties back to John's prologue. Right. It's, it's, yeah, I, I need to listen to you. And she announces that. it. She announces it. I mean, she's just like we get in Genesis with the, you know, the Egyptian slave, Hagar, is the one who names God first. Yes, that's right. right. So in John's gospel, you know, it's this woman. Yeah. Again, an outsider, ethnic outsider, who's, you know, been sinned against repeatedly. Yeah. Suffered incredible suffering. She's the one who says, this is the one that you need. This is the Messiah. Yeah, and I think that's, it's so the, the texts appear patriarchal in ways. Now, of course they're written in a patriarchal world precisely as the witness of our God. I don't think that they're, they're inherently patriarchal. We read them that way because we're glancing off the surface of these, these stories that are telling us something else about what God is, what God is doing, what God desires and has always desired. I think, I think it's a, it's prophetic, right? In all the ways that you've talked about. Kim, thank you so, yeah. oh, so, so much for this. Thank you. I've, um, I've so enjoyed it. It's, it's, it's wonderful. I, I will confess that I worked out a lot of those lectures kind of in a vacuum. And I kept thinking, I need to, <laughs> I need to be able to talk to somebody about this before I get up and state it, as if, you know? And so it's really great. I should have had this conversation beforehand, maybe off, uh, no, no, no. We should, we should record but... them. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be fun, but we'll do it again soon. <laughs> it was great. Thank you for making time for it. <laughs>